most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, December 5th, 2023, the 1049th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So last year, as the narrative began to unfold around Vladimir Putin's very brutal invasion of Ukraine, it did not take long at all to see that most of what we were being told about that so-called invasion was absolutely false. They were just making it up. They had been previewing the narrative for months, seeding little story elements, there was even the suggestion that Russia was going to be launching false flags that justified their war effort. And soon after it began, we heard about Putin's goals and about peace negotiations and offers that were on the table and were being declined by the Western powers who were operating Volodymyr Zelensky, the great hero, the comedic actor in Ukraine. They were operating him as a little puppet. That became obvious. We found out about the bio labs and then those were confirmed by none other than Undersecretary of State Victoria Newland, whose husband, as we discussed yesterday, Robert Kagan, just wrote a massive op ed for The Washington Post, spreading his globalist elite panic to the public about an impending Trump dictatorship. We saw the ghost of Kiev. We heard about Snake Island. We heard about the girl rushing with her baby from the bombed out maternity hospital. And then we eventually found out all of those stories were false. We were told that the Azov Battalion was not a Nazi battalion, even though the congressional record reflected discussions about Azov as a Nazi battalion, even though semi-mainstream reporting from the left wing described the Azov Battalion as Nazis. We were told they weren't Nazis. And then we were told, yeah, I guess they are Nazis. But it's okay 
because the comedic actor is Jewish. Don't you understand? Nazis are okay if they're controlled by a Jewish person who the regime approves of. If Nazis are controlled by anyone else other than an at least partially Jewish person who has the approval of the regime, then the Nazis are bad. But that's not what we have here. This is one of those times where those Nazis are okay. We were told Putin invaded Ukraine unprovoked just like he did when he stole away Crimea and then the global regime cut off all their water and tried to kill everybody on that island. But we're not talking about Crimea. Let's talk about the Donbass, those independent regions. The media kind of forgot to tell us that. And then when they had referenda in those independent regions, asking the people of those regions if they wanted to join Russia, they all said yes. But the media told us, oh, that's just election fraud. They tried to tell us that Russia was going to take over Chernobyl and cause a nuclear disaster. And then they told us that Russia was taking over Zaporozhia, which they did. And they were attacking that nuclear plant, except Russia was actually running it and the Ukrainians were attacking it. And then we were told about how Russia was going to start a nuclear war. And then we were told that Russian missiles had gone into Poland and killed some people in Poland. And therefore, Article 5 would have to be activated and the United States would have to come to Poland's rescue. Except <laughs> that was Ukrainians who did that too. And then there was the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, that incident of international terrorism, which we were first told was carried out by the Russians. And then we found out it was actually US and UK intelligence involved in doing that. All the people who had said something would have to happen to that pipeline, those were the people who did it. But now, but now, don't worry, don't worry. It's a quote unquote, not them. It was Ukrainians. In another incident of international terrorism, the Crimean bridge was blown up and we were told that was the Russians. And it turned out it was Ukrainians with intel help from the US and the UK. And you got to remember, of course, that all of that five eyes intelligence was handed over from the fake president, Joe Biden to China, who then just went and handed it right to Russia. So Russia had access to all that Five Eyes intelligence the entire time. No wonder Ukraine is winning so hard. And we started sending them tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. Just hand over fist. Give these Ukrainians more money. We have to protect their very sovereign borders for the very brave people of Ukraine. It's not that we're defending a globalist proxy state, a hub for money laundering and human trafficking and drug trafficking and weapons trafficking and sex trafficking. It can't be any of those things. And biomedical research? No, we're defending Ukraine's very sovereign borders for the very brave people of Ukraine and this project is so important that although those are indeed Nazis with a rich history of Nazism right in that country, it's like that particular part of Europe is their homeland or something. And everybody knows that's not true. It's the homeland of the Kazarian Mafia, and there's no connection there whatsoever. But no matter how much 
money and how much weaponry and how many mercenaries were sent over to Ukraine. It just wasn't enough. It just wasn't working. Too much of it was getting skimmed off. Weapons were being sold on the black market. Money was being laundered to other places. We just kept giving and giving and giving. And what we were giving just never made it to where it was supposed to go. So Ukraine, they didn't have the success that everyone was told to expect. And very stupid people actually believed. They were told there's going to be a spring counteroffensive and we're going to take back all that territory from those Russians. In fact, what we're going to do is wear Russia down in a war of attrition and weaken their military to save the whole rest of the world. And we're going to use Ukraine in order to do that. That spring counteroffensive, that's going to be the difference in this struggle. And perhaps they had a spring counteroffensive, but perhaps not, because then we started hearing about a spring-summer counteroffensive. And perhaps that happened, but perhaps not, because then we started hearing about a summer counteroffensive. And maybe that happened. There's just no reason to believe it did, because nothing on the ground has changed, and Ukraine is still losing by unbelievable amounts. It's like they never even had a chance in the first place, and we were lied to about the whole thing. But wait a second, that spring-summer counteroffensive, oh yeah, all the planning for that was leaked out online before the counteroffensive happened. So Russia knew all those plans too. What a limited hangout that was. And over the months since, support for Ukraine has gone from everyone having blue and yellow flags on their houses and blue and yellow flag emojis in their social media profiles and every corporation changing their corporate colors to blue and yellow to now people really not caring that much and an entire side of the Uniparty refusing to go along with the agenda of sending more money to Ukraine because it is such a toxic political issue in the United States now. And besides, they need to send money to Israel. Now, throughout this period of the very brutal invasion in Ukraine that began at the end of February 2022, we've seen a couple problems with how this narrative has unfolded. Now, we absolutely have the fog of war problem. There is no way for us to know that anything we've been told about that Ukraine event is verifiably true. There's just no way for us to know any of that. We're talking about a situation where the mainstream media had people on TV talking about Ukraine while holding wooden guns. We watched U2 go over and perform a special concert down in a subway that we were pretending was a bomb shelter, a bunker. Oh, they can't get us here. Bono just travels on over to Ukraine. Sean Penn just travels over and gives the comedic actor an Oscar. The comedic actor in his sweatsuit and his wife in couture do a fashion photo shoot for Vanity Fair. Or maybe it was Vogue. Who cares? Our fake president, Joe Biden, he went over there for a meeting with the comedic actor. At least that's what we're told. It was basically a Photoshop. They played fake air raid sirens as Biden and Zelensky walked through Kiev, a place that has never really been attacked. But hey, now we're hearing maybe this winter. 
But the point is that the difficulties in figuring out what was going on over there go far, far beyond the fog of war problem. And we should understand that that situation, the reality of it, the empirical observable reality on the ground over there is something that we have very little, if any, access to. And when we are thinking about these situations, it is imperative that we keep that fact in mind. Now, that doesn't work well with our online discourse because people online believe that they have collected all the facts and can support the truth of the central narrative or some ancillary narrative based on information derived from the central narrative and then assumed to be true for no reason other than this is what has been reported and this is the full quantity of the information we have access to. Now, it of course is true that that is not all the information people have access to, but even if they were right about that part, that does not mean that because it's the only information we have, we have to then assume that it's true as a plausible explanation. We should be exercising extreme skepticism about absolutely everything we hear and demand that it be substantiated before we incorporate it into our thinking, especially if we are asked to support this or that particular policy or action that has real-world consequences and for which we would then bear moral responsibility for supporting. So, for instance... If you were one of the people in 2022 suggesting that brave commander in chief Joe Biden should lead the U.S. on a mission in Ukraine to destroy Russia's army, knowing that it would spark a kinetic World War III that we may well lose, you'd be making some awfully big statements on very bad information with profound moral implications. You don't really want to be that person. But unfortunately, there are a great many of that person. And despite the experience of 2022 and most of this year, when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, they haven't backed off that position at all. So we understand that we have a nearly opaque fog of war in Ukraine and in Israel, for that matter, when it comes to knowing exactly what is happening there. But we do have full access to the information about what they want us to believe is happening there. And by that, I mean the narrative as it unfolds from the mouthpieces of the regime, the global state propaganda media apparatus and its reactions to any stories that might disrupt their central narrative, their official story. All of that is a true representation about what they want us to believe about what's happening there. We can understand all of that as a true representation about what they want us to believe. And we can understand that a lot of people out there are going to believe all of those things, or at the very least, they will try to. And the things they are supposed to believe that are in conflict, well, they're going to have cognitive dissonance over those things, and they might create a whole lot of nonsensical stories they tell themselves in order to make all of it make sense together, even though it can't possibly 
because all of it is a web of lies and anything new that comes out is just something they're using to plug a hole between their other lies, a new lie to fix the problem with the old lies. They hope people will just incorporate that and keep moving on because all of it is so confusing. Now, because people believe these official stories, these parts of the central narrative, it is essentially guaranteed that people out in the world will act on these beliefs that are continually produced through the consumption of the official stories that make up the central narrative. They will continue trying to learn all of the details of these stories. And they assume that once they know all of the details, they know as much as a person could know and they will feel highly informed. And as someone who is highly informed and highly attentive to the issue, they will feel like they're in a pretty good position intellectually and morally to make moral judgments about right and wrong, who should live, who should die, where the wars should start. And they feel adequately prepared to answer questions like, how many people is it reasonable to kill in response to this thing that happened? And their answers will generally be like, oh, well, how many would have been rational to kill back in World War II to prevent the rise of Hitler? Hey, who are you saying is Hitler in this situation? Is it the people supporting Nazis? Oh, no, it's not. Okay, well, I personally am not going to engage with that blatant retardation, but you are welcome to hold on to it. Those people are the absolute worst because they look at the collective narrative distributed by the global state propaganda media, and they will assume that what is being communicated to them, what the regime wants them to believe is actually the best possible information they could get. And the recommended solutions are very likely the most rational based on this information. They have no idea what's actually happening, but they are sure that the thing the regime wants them to believe about what's happening must be happening unless someone else, of course, can disprove it based on information from the same sources. Any inconsistencies are chalked up to human error because, of course, all these people are really trying their best. Now, a lot of people understand this dynamic and don't trust the media at least not to the extent that standard issue villagers do, but they still assume that the media must be sort of right. They could never be making up the whole thing. They might be exaggerating here or there. They might be treating opinion as fact. They might be leaving out whole chunks of information and certainly anything that might disprove what they're saying otherwise. They try to draw conclusions for their reader passing them through the most biased lenses anyone could ever imagine. But they couldn't possibly be making up the whole thing, right? Well, the answer is, how would we possibly know? They absolutely could be making up the whole thing, and they could convince people of a whole lot of things that aren't true at all. And we've seen that happen over and over and over again the past few years. They absolutely could be making it up from the bottom up. We're talking about people who still pretend that masks worked and still pretend that Joe Biden got 81 million real lawful American votes. They could absolutely be making the whole thing up. The only thing we can really do is watch what they are attempting to do with the narrative. What do they want us to believe? How do they want us to feel about it? 
And what action are they telling us we should take or support in the real world? I would argue that is about the extent to which any of these situations are knowable. And because that's all we really have to go on, I would also argue that that's the part we should be interacting with to try to understand, because from that, we actually can learn quite a lot about people's intentions and their goals and the agendas they support and their affiliations and alignments. And when we understand that, we can better process the things they're saying, which allows us to better understand potential realities that they might be looking to cover up. We can see where they're drawing attention or where they might be hoping to deflect attention. I have argued, as have many in my Badlands cohort, that we should be primarily focused on interacting with the narratives as narratives, because they are essentially doing PR. They are launching advertising campaigns to get us to essentially purchase certain beliefs and certain belief systems so that we will take certain actions and support certain actions by them that help them advance their overall global agenda and the buy-in to that agenda. If we want to stop what they are doing in reality, we have to understand what they're trying to do in reality. And in reality, they are trying to shift the collective mind into certain beliefs, certain belief systems that will ultimately support their agenda. Now, I preface all of that to talk a little bit about where we are in the Israel narrative and how to process this narrative as it unfolds, as we saw with Vladimir Putin's very brutal invasion of Ukraine. There are people who are engaged with the official story and parsing the details of the official story basically 24 hours a day all the time, now for nearly two months. We're two days away from the two-month anniversary of when the paragliding go-karts attacked the Desert Rave, and now we have World War III on our hands. There are people who have been looking at the very most minute details of every single story that emerges about that situation, and everyone who's interacting with the granularity of this narrative as it unfolds believes that their first reaction that very first day continues to be reaffirmed and proven again and again and again and again and again. Whatever they thought on that very first day, now they believe with this story as it has unfolded every day, they are more right every day than they ever were before. And this is exactly the same as what happened throughout Putin's very brutal invasion. And we have come to find out that all of those people who were absolutely obsessed with the granular details of every story that emerged from Ukraine, were almost exclusively wrong about absolutely all of it, every step of the way, every day, every moment of every day, all the time. They were wrong about the big picture. They were wrong about every single little picture. And despite all of that, They are still engaging with the granular details of every piece of that story. And now they're doing the same thing about Israel, believing there's no way that they were wrong about Ukraine. And because of that, there's no way they're going to be wrong about Israel. And because we're talking about the Jews being attacked, their loud and vocal support for the comedic actor and the Nazi battalions he was controlling is not 
in any way in conflict with calling everyone who fails to support them now a Nazi sympathizer or a Holocaust denier or any other brand of bigot or fool or anti-Semite or Nazi. Today, we have the illegitimate U.S. House of Representatives voting on a GOP resolution condemning anti-Semitism. And in the resolution, it actually states that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And of course, that's not true at all. To the extent that anti-Semitism is even correctly defined as being anti-Jewish, which is incorrect already, there are, as we've discussed before, a great many Jewish anti-Zionists. So it just can't be the case that anti-Zionism means you are anti-Jewish. Although naturally they would retort that these are self-hating Jews because anti-Zionism is anti-Jewish. So if they are anti-Zionist, then they are anti-Jewish despite being Jewish rabbis. It's just that they really, really hate themselves. Now one might quickly realize, wait a second, isn't self-hatred the sort of thing one could produce with communist ideology? And you might say, yes, that's exactly what happens with communist ideology. It's not really what happens when fully committed to a faith-based belief system centered around God. But let's just leave that aside. Anti-Zionist Jewish rabbis argue that the creation of a Jewish state is expressly forbidden in their religious doctrine. They claim that Zionism itself, which is the support of a Jewish state, is an inversion of their religious beliefs. So the idea that anti-Zionism is anti-Jewish falls apart immediately from their perspective. And of course, the only response to that is, nah, that's wrong. These people just hate themselves. It's fairly ridiculous, but that is not stopping our uniparty from pushing forward some formal approval for Zionism as policy on behalf of the global regime. And while we see organizations like the Anti-Defamation League and their representative, Jonathan Greenblatt, pushing for mass censorship of any views they deem to be anti-Semitic, which is, again, whatever they deem it to be. And while we see organizations like the ADL and Media Matters trying to convince the transnational corporations involved with the global regime to pull their advertising dollars out of Twitter while they're engaged in a public shaming campaign of Elon Musk. We can see that right now the U.S. House of Representatives is laying out a formal basis upon which they can justify the exact sort of censorship that the ADL and Media Matters are calling for. And one might wonder why the GOP is attempting to enable that through the policies they're pushing. Now, you might say this is just a resolution and maybe it will stay just a resolution. Fair enough. But there's not any reason to believe that's definitely true. And I don't even know why anyone would give that viewpoint the benefit of the doubt, considering what else we witness on a regular, almost daily basis. Strangely, the person making the point about anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism in Congress is Jerry Nadler, the guy who looks like Danny DeVito's version of the Penguin in the Batman movie from the 90s. He said it is either intellectually disingenuous or just factually wrong. And he also said the authors, if they were at all familiar with Jewish history and culture, 
should know about Jewish anti-Zionism that was and is expressly not anti-Semitic. Most anti-Zionism, particularly in this moment, has a real anti-Semitism problem, but we cannot fairly say that one equals the other. And it may well be true that people don't like the state of Israel because they don't like Jews, but it's also possible to just not support the state of Israel as if it represents all the wants and needs and desires and beliefs of all Jews, just like it's entirely possible to support America and the American people without supporting either side of our uniparty government. It actually does matter which specific thing people are opposed to and why. It continues to astound me that after years of listening to normie conservatives who never got censored anywhere, talking about all the problems with cancel culture, now they have decided that any dissent from their chosen narrative does now constitute some form of bigotry or racism, which is the exact sort of argument and form of argument that they spent years arguing against in admittedly extraordinarily ineffective ways, because look at them, look at who they are. They don't know how to win arguments and they're not honestly trying to win arguments. They're just trying to play their side of the controlled opposition dynamic, which is why over decades now they have simply let the country collapse and have accepted America's decline as it's subsumed by this global regime because, of course, they profit from it and they're happy overall to support the global narrative, though they do disagree with it in some respects that they're very loud about because if they weren't, no one would believe them at all. So Nadler, along with Dan Goldman and Friar Cuck Jamie Raskin, want to pass an alternative resolution that condemns anti-Semitism but also calls on executive branch agencies and Congress to implement the Biden administration's national strategy to counter anti-Semitism. So it sounds like either direction they choose will end up ultimately at the same place. And then there are two Democrat women looking to pass a resolution condemning Hamas's reported use of sexual violence and rape against Israeli women. And of course, we have to believe all of the stories, all the official stories from the central narrative to be true as reported in order to support any of this and then assume that people we know to be corrupt political criminals and liars are in this case acting out of the goodness of their own hearts. When you understand there's no possible way that's happening, then you must wonder what else are they trying to accomplish here? And does that justify the exploitation of these reports of heinous crimes and brutality? But let's get into some of these reports because there has been a lot of movement in the big picture narrative on Israel over the last week. And while a lot of the media is busy obsessively covering the granular details of each and every official story that comes out about Israel in the central narrative, I think it's better to take the same approach we took throughout Putin's very brutal invasion of Ukraine, which is following the major storylines within that central narrative, rather than going through and making sure we memorize each little detail that supports our prior conclusions. And I want to talk about an effect I believe that we can observe in this situation and probably apply to other situations. And I want to call that 
the narrative seesaw, because what we're seeing from the media over the last week is a narrative operation to convince people of one thing that is going to make them stop believing another necessary component. And then in response, we see support for that necessary component. So it just goes back and forth. They need to balance this narrative out. And so rather than trying to flesh that out all the way, let's use this as an example and see if you agree with what I'm talking about here. So last Thursday, November 30th, big story in the New York Times. That story, as of today, carries the headline, Israel knew Hamas's attack plan more than a year ago. So that was published by Ronan Bergman and Adam Goldman on November 30th, 2023. And it has been updated a few times since the most recent being December 2nd, 2023. The New York Times also has on their website a shorter version of this that links to the full article. And that version carries the headline, Israel had a blueprint for the October 7th attacks a year ago. Officials dismissed it. But let's get into a bit of this story. I understand it was last Thursday and some of you may have gone through this. We talked a little bit about it on Friday morning on Badlands Daily and a little more about it on Saturday night's Devolution Power Hour. But it's an absolutely crucial piece of what I'm talking about and a crucial piece of information to know if you're following along with this story. And regardless of how much of the official story is true as reported, if it is at all, everyone should still pretty easily understand why the story itself is important, because this is all a lead up to World War III, ultimately, if they can get it. Israeli officials obtained Hamas's battle plan for the October 7th terrorist attack more than a year before it happened. Documents, emails and interviews show. But Israeli military and intelligence officials dismissed the plan as aspirational, considering it too difficult for Hamas to carry out. And so we were told right from the beginning, this is Israel's 9-11. And what do we know about 9-11? Osama bin Laden determined to attack America. That was from a presidential daily briefing, we were told. George Bush had that information, we were told. George Bush also had the information that Al-Qaeda might hijack American jet planes and fly them into buildings as an attack. So George Bush and his administration, Condoleezza Rice, Donald Rumsfeld, old Dick Cheney, they had access to the intelligence that if properly acted upon may have saved the country from that devastating event and of course saved the lives of all those who were killed in that event. And very sadly, it might have saved all the lives that were lost as a result of the reaction to that event and that 20 year Middle Eastern war that flushed U.S. blood and treasure down the drain and created yet another globalist proxy state over in the Middle East, a hub for all sorts of crime, money laundering, all sorts of trafficking exposed in many places, but also in General Michael Flynn's Afghanistan papers. Countless lives were lost on all sides. The human death toll is extraordinary and it could have all been prevented if those in charge had properly analyzed and properly responded to that intelligence that they had in advance. Now, of course, that perspective is part of that same controlled opposition dynamic. You have to have some level of buy-in to the underlying story to even think that makes sense. 
And if you're someone who believes that that was an inside job on some level and not just the level where it was, quote unquote, allowed to happen, then being previously warned about planes flying into buildings doesn't really matter. A warning about a plane flying into a building, for instance, wouldn't make a difference in the Pentagon scenario if no plane flew into that building. And there is at least ample reason to believe that no plane did. But regardless, inside that narrative alone, there exists ample justification to immediately call for the stripping of any authority from the people in power who allowed that to happen. And you would certainly at that point want to stop giving them more power to act, knowing that human lives would surely be destroyed in the process in response to an attack that even if true as reported was still allowed to happen by them. And that is the only way to say it. It is your responsibility to keep people safe. You had the information you needed to have kept them safe for whatever reason, the information wasn't taken seriously. And then somehow on the world's most secure border, paragliding go-karts were allowed to fly over and commit atrocities. If there was some 9-11 style attack on America, and we might yet get a story about false flag attacks that happen here that they may say are on par with that. They tried to say the very violent insurrection was on par with that. So it's entirely possible that in 2024, they will try to have a mirror event of that. Now, I hope that's not the case, but it certainly is possible. And if something like that happened, we can bet our lives we're not going to be told the truth about it, especially not right away. Were we then to hear that Joe Biden, the president, knew about those attacks in advance of those attacks, it would be awfully silly to think, Joe Biden, that fake president, that's the guy we need at the switch when considering who we need to kill in response. We wouldn't think that. In fact, our response would be, and even many of the people who cast their quote unquote vote for Joe Biden, they would very likely blame him for the attack as well. It would be awfully hard for Joe Biden to garner support from the American public for any recommended response overseen by him after allowing an attack like that to happen, especially with his extraordinarily diminished stature as an illegitimate president and an incompetent one at that. But back to the New York Times. The approximately 40-page document, which the Israeli authorities codenamed Jericho Wall, outlined point by point exactly the kind of devastating invasion that led to the deaths of about 1,200 people. And it's worth noting that originally, for the first month, that number was 1,400 people. The whole time, 1,400, 1,400, 1,400. They have revised that down to 1,200. Now, perhaps you don't think it's a big deal to be wrong about something like that. Could just be human error. This is actually an example of their honesty and attention to detail, that they would revise it down, knowing that it makes their case sound less severe. But let's go on. The translated document, which was reviewed by the New York Times, did not set a date for the attack, but described a methodical assault designed to overwhelm the fortifications around the Gaza Strip, take over Israeli cities, and storm key military bases, including a division headquarters. Hamas followed the blueprint with shocking precision. I mean, for real. 
if we had watched the attack play out in the narrative and then they had written this Jericho wall document about how the attack would be, it couldn't have been any more accurate. And hey, take a second with it. You'll get it. The document called for a barrage of rockets at the outset of the attack. Drones to knock out the security cameras and automated machine guns along the border and gunmen to pour into Israel en masse in paragliders, on motorcycles, and on foot, all of which happened on October 7th. You see what I mean? It's like <laughs> this document, they just followed this blueprint exactly, and Israel's defense forces, the most expert group of border defenders in the world, along the world's most secure border, just couldn't stop this plan that they already had. That was carried out so exactly. It's as if they read the news reports from the future and wrote down what those news reports said as their battle attack plans. And then it played out just like that in the future. Those crazy time traveling Hamas terrorists. The plan also included details about the location and size of Israeli military forces communication hubs, and other sensitive information raising questions about how Hamas gathered its intelligence and whether there were leaks inside the Israeli security establishment. Whoa. So you're saying that the Israeli security establishment who allowed this attack to happen despite knowing exactly how the attack would happen also may have leaked out information to Hamas that allowed them to plan how to attack Israel? Man, oh man, these must be the most irresponsible people anyone's defense forces have ever seen. This is like Israel's 9-11 or something. The document circulated widely among Israeli military and intelligence leaders, but experts determined that an attack of that scale and ambition was beyond Hamas's capabilities, according to documents and officials. Okay, so documents and officials say that experts determined an attack of that scale and ambition was beyond Hamas's capabilities. So we have anonymous sources confirming anonymous experts in their assessment that Hamas couldn't do this thing. And so the world's greatest border defenders and most expert military trusted the experts and it didn't work out. Got it. Last year, shortly after the document was obtained, officials in the Israeli military's Gaza division, which is responsible for defending the border with Gaza, said that Hamas's intentions were unclear. Well, I thought it was like their whole thing that they were going to wipe Israel off the map and kill all the Jews. I've been told that that is literally the only reason they exist. It's in their founding documents and everything. So it would seem like that was their intention. And they had this document, this Jericho wall document that explained how they were going to put this intention into practice. And it was ignored because they were trusting the experts. It is not yet possible to determine whether the plan has been fully accepted and how it will be manifested read a military assessment reviewed by the Times. Then in July, just three months before the attacks, a veteran analyst with Unit 8200, Israel's Signals Intelligence Agency, warned that Hamas had conducted an intense day-long training exercise that appeared similar to what was outlined in the blueprint. 
So they had the plan for a year. And then a few months before the attack, they actually had intelligence that Hamas conducted an exercise to practice what they were then going to do in October. But a colonel in the Gaza division brushed off her concerns, according to encrypted emails viewed by the Times. Now, you might be saying, who's the her in this situation? Well, that is the veteran analyst with Unit 8200. And you are a sexist for not immediately understanding that. And then a colonel in the Gaza division brushed off this strong woman's concerns. Probably was an old white man in the Gaza division. I utterly refute that the scenario is imaginary. The analyst wrote in the email exchanges, the Hamas training exercise, she said, fully matched, quote, the content of Jericho Wall. It is a plan designed to start a war, she added. It is not just a raid on a village. Now, I can't wait to see the Hollywood film made about this Israeli intelligence analyst, this veteran who knew about the war and tried to warn people, but was thwarted by her older male colleagues. And she's definitely going to be played by Gal Gadot. I'd be surprised if this movie's not already in the can. Hopefully it'll come out next year on either July 4th or September 11th. I bet it'll be inspiring to women everywhere. And if you don't like it and you say things like this is even worse than the female Ghostbusters, well, then you can be imprisoned because by then Congress will have passed this measure. Officials privately concede that had the military taken these warnings seriously and redirected significant reinforcements to the South where Hamas attacked, Israel could have blunted the attacks or even possibly prevented them. And they have some beautiful staged photographs of a very diverse military, just a bunch of young, good looking guys hanging out. Looks like a fashion ad, very similar to the photos that came out after the Afghanistan withdrawal. And that's supposed to let you know that although this was a massive military failure to the point where it can reliably be said, hey, they allowed this to happen. They're on it. They've got soldiers out there on the streets in really spectacular looking photo shoots. Now, you might imagine when you are trying to set in place a new major chunk of the central narrative, you really need to cover all your bases. So the article is quite long and has all sorts of granular details that everyone really should spend all their time memorizing. But let's just go through a few more paragraphs and then we can move on. You're more than welcome to take a look at this article by yourself if you haven't already. Instead, the Israeli military was unprepared as terrorists streamed out of the Gaza Strip. It was the deadliest day in Israel's history. Israeli security officials have already acknowledged that they failed to protect the country. And the government is expected to assemble a commission to study the events leading up to the attacks. And I imagine they will call that Israel's 9-11 commission. The Jericho Wall document lays bare a years-long cascade of missteps that culminated in what officials now regard as the worst Israeli intelligence failure since the surprise attack that led to the Arab-Israeli War of 1973. It was an intelligence failure, and the only response is to indiscriminately kill as many people as necessary until they feel like justice has been served and any areas needed for future infrastructure projects have been totally decimated and cleared out. 
And if they're able to start that kinetic World War III that they weren't able to start in Ukraine, well, hey, so be it. Everything is warranted considering what has happened. This was, after all, Israel's 9-11. Underpinning all these failures was a single fatally inaccurate belief that Hamas lacked the capability to attack and would not dare to do so. That belief was so ingrained in the Israeli government, officials said, that they disregarded growing evidence to the contrary. And it actually sounds in some sense like the New York Times is talking shit to the Israeli government. Like you thought Hamas wasn't tough enough to do something like that, but they were. They sure were. The Israeli military and the Israeli security agency, which is in charge of counterterrorism in Gaza, declined to comment. Officials would not say how they obtained the Jericho Wall document, but it was among several versions of attack plans collected over the years. A 2016 Defense Ministry memorandum viewed by the Times, for example, says Hamas intends to move the next confrontation into Israeli territory. Very specific. So there were several different versions of attack plans, and they went with this one. And no one can say how these plans were obtained, but there's absolutely no way that they were just recently written after this whole thing happened and that the New York Times is just laundering all of this as historical documents that the Israeli military and, of course, Benjamin Netanyahu had access to. Such an attack would most likely involve hostage taking and, quote, occupying an Israeli community and perhaps even a number of communities. The memo reads. The Jericho Wall document, and by the way, Jericho Wall document, that is great branding. That is the sort of thing that people will remember, and they'll just refer to it knowing that all that information about what it is is packed inside. It's now something that exists among the set of things that quote unquote everybody knows. Oh, the Jericho Wall document. Everybody knows what that is. It will just exist as shorthand. Named for the ancient fortifications in the modern-day West Bank. The document was even more explicit. It detailed rocket attacks to distract Israeli soldiers and send them hurrying into bunkers and drones to disable the elaborate security measures along the border fence separating Israel and Gaza. They thought of everything. Hamas fighters would then break through 60 points in the wall, storming across the border into Israel. The document begins with a quote from the Quran. Surprise them through the gate. If you do, you will certainly prevail. The same phrase has been widely used by Hamas in its videos and statements since October 7th. So you get the picture. They had plenty of warnings about each and every aspect of this attack. In fact, this attack plan was followed so exactly, it's as if you might as well have run the whole attack and then just written this document to encompass everything that was reported by the media so that everyone who understands there is this document thinks, well, they did say they were going to do all these things that we've been told they eventually did. So it's definitely true that they did all these things as reported as they had planned. And all we need to understand about this is that it's Benjamin Netanyahu's fault because all of this could have been prevented if people had just listened to that strong woman that analyst in Unit 8200. But the last couple paragraphs here. 
the failures to connect the dots echoed another analytical failure more than two decades ago, when the American authorities also had multiple indications that the terrorist group Al-Qaeda was preparing an assault. The September 11, 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon were largely a failure of analysis and imagination, a government commission concluded. The Israeli intelligence failure on October 7th is sounding more and more like our 9-11, said Ted Singer, a recently retired CIA official who worked extensively in the Middle East. The failure will be a gap in analysis to paint a convincing picture to military and political leadership that Hamas had the intention to launch the attack when it did. So let's think about this whole situation. Just really quickly recap what this situation looks like from the good twin evil twin perspective rather than the more normie perspective, where what we have are individual countries and entities that all act independently of everything else, independently of some larger plan, some larger geopolitical construct, and certainly no World War III on an information level. So we understand that the state of Israel, as created by the global regime, has a major element of global regime infiltration and influence in the country. And that is entirely distinct from the Israeli people or the Jewish people and what they might want and the factions of that government that align with the interests of the Jewish people and the Israeli people and not the global regime, the evil twin as represented in Israel. We know that leading up to these events, there was a color revolution being staged by the global evil twin in Israel with the goal of taking out Benjamin Netanyahu. The global evil twin was trying to reconfigure Israel's Supreme Court in the way they did in Brazil and in the way they're attempting to or want to do eventually in the United States so that the Supreme Court ends up with kind of an overriding ultimate power, certainly one able to adjudicate all election problems. And we have seen the problems with that in Brazil. That's why Jair Bolsonaro is not recognized as the president of Brazil right now. It seems they are about two or three years behind the United States going through all the same story steps as the same playbook plays out. So the global evil twin was already trying to take out Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, does that make Benjamin Netanyahu part of the good twin element? Maybe, maybe not. We leave all options open and watch as the emergent reality we can detect from the narrative as reported maps onto our understanding. We know they wanted to take him out. And now the responsibility for this October 7th issue is going to be laid at Netanyahu's feet. Can Khan and I were going through this on Friday morning on Badlands Daily. I had not seen this article on Thursday, and a few paragraphs in, my first response was, oh, this is clearly just an effort to take out Benjamin Netanyahu. Because I think the natural reaction to hearing that the government and the defense forces had allowed this attack to happen would be to say, well, the buck stops with Netanyahu. It has to, right? So this is ultimately his fault. And whatever happens, he needs to be held accountable. There's also plenty of reporting that says, when this war effort is over, Benjamin Netanyahu will be out 
And so the idea is that Benjamin Netanyahu wants to keep the war going so he can remain in power. And that, of course, is a very silly narrative. That is the sort of thing they would say about Donald Trump to undermine his authority while he is in power. They're saying he wants to hold on to power so badly that he is willing to commit all kinds of further atrocities in order to keep that power. But assuming that this New York Times report is true and assuming that you want to hold somebody accountable, he's probably just about number one on that list. Certainly among public figures, it would be Netanyahu. Now, the other reaction that people might have is to think, well, if they allowed this to happen and they are acting like that's not what happened, like this is all about Hamas and their incredible attack with these paragliding go-karts, and that's what justifies the Israeli response, well, maybe that Israeli response isn't justified because we weren't given the right understanding of what happened in the first place. I mean, if the evil twin faction in Israel allowed this to happen and the evil twin faction is also responsible for the Muslim Brotherhood, which birthed this Hamas terrorist thing, well, then that begins to sound like the evil twin faction in Israel and the evil twin faction as represented by the Muslim Brotherhood and then Hamas worked together to create this event because this event allows them to achieve goals that make up part of their overall global agenda, whether those are about creating space for infrastructure projects, whether they're about resources and transportation routes, or whether they're about overthrowing and replacing governments. Kamala Harris and Hillary Clinton are both out there talking about how the Palestinian authority needs to be put in power there. The global regime clearly wants governments it can control on both sides, and to the extent they don't think they can control those governments, they're going to do anything they can to undermine that which they cannot otherwise control. That is what we saw them doing with Benjamin Netanyahu before this incident, and now we see a clear effort to take Netanyahu out. And of course, we know there have been multiple cycles, multiple reruns of this story, placing that responsibility in the Jerusalem Post on November 19th. The headline was IDF commanders ignored lookouts warnings over Hamas massacre. So just like 9-11, we're being told there are all these different instances of signs that pointed to an attack about to happen. And they knew exactly how the attack would happen. But whoops, they just missed it. Whose fault is it? Well, it's very likely Benjamin Netanyahu's fault. The Jerusalem Post back on October 12th reported that Israelis blame the government for the Hamas massacre and say Netanyahu must resign. They reported that an overwhelming majority, 86% of respondents, including 79% of coalition supporters, said the surprise attack from Gaza is a failure of the country's leadership, while a staggering 92% said the war is causing anxiety. So 8% of Israelis apparently don't even feel anxiety about this war. That should make you question a lot of things, but let's leave that aside. Almost all the respondents, 94%, believe the government must bear some responsibility for the lack of security preparedness that led to the assault, with over 75% saying the government holds most of the responsibility. A slim majority of 56% said Netanyahu must resign at the end of the war, 
with 28% of coalition voters agreeing with that view. So the rationale for the response in the immediate aftermath is now being buttressed by these new reports. It's saying you thought BB was bad and responsible right when it happened. Well, check this out. They actually knew for a year and they didn't stop it from happening. And it really is kind of strange that none of these news organizations ever take that next step and say, well, if they allowed it to happen, is there any chance that that was actually coordinated? Is this something that both sides actually wanted to happen so that they could exploit the situation for whatever needs they might have? Why don't they ever explore that territory? Oh yeah, it's because it's so evil that no one could ever do that. Therefore, it doesn't happen. You can't just go around admitting evil like that. Then people might understand, whoa, there is real evil in the world. Thank goodness those people on TV who tell us it's not happening will protect us. Now, within 24 hours of that report dropping from the New York Times, we got headlines about how the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas had been broken. This is Time Magazine on December 1st, why the Israel-Hamas ceasefire was destined to fail. As a week-long truce between Israel and Hamas ended Friday, with Hamas firing a barrage of rockets into Israel and the Israeli military renewing combat operations in the Gaza Strip, one thing became abundantly clear. The war won't be ending anytime soon. Despite a pause in fighting that stirred hope among some that the beginning of the end could be near, the two sides have reignited the conflict. We are ready and preparing ourselves to keep on this mission for as long as it takes, says Richard Hecht, an Israeli Defense Forces spokesperson. Each side blamed the other for the breakdown in negotiations. On Thursday, Hamas killed four Israelis in a terrorist attack in Jerusalem and launched more rockets into Israel, which Israel said violated the ceasefire. By Friday, Israel struck Gaza with a series of air raids and announced plans for a high-intensity operation to target Hamas installations in the southern part of the Strip. The IDF also released a map to lead Palestinian non-combatants out of harm's way. The war's toll on civilians in Gaza has been an intense concern for the international community, with the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry claiming more than 15,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli airstrikes. Those figures do not distinguish between civilians and combatants. And if you can't distinguish, well, then you have to assume that they're combatants. So it's really just 15,000 Palestinian combatants. And once you reframe them as combatants, well, then you can't feel bad about it. You actually start feeling, well, I guess that's justified being that Hamas killed 1,400, no wait, 1,200 Israelis on the day of the attack of the paragliding go-karts. So we have a report about how Israel knew about these attacks in advance and failed to stop them to the point where you might say they simply allowed those attacks to happen either through direct intent or ha, incompetence, just simple human error. And that should make you want to hold someone accountable. And who should you hold accountable? Well, Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, you don't want that information just lingering out there or people might say, hey, we have to stop this war thing. It doesn't sound like it's justified in the same way as it did before. Now that you have told us it's actually Israel who allowed this to happen. 
it makes it a lot harder for us to support the indiscriminate killing of whoever they want until they decide that justice has been served, or at least they've cleared out enough territory for infrastructure projects. But that's not the sort of narrative you can just leave out there. So what you need is another Hamas terrorist attack that is going to jeopardize the ceasefire and justify more Israeli air raids. Let's go bomb the shit out of them. Or as many of the online Con Inc. uniparty right, quote unquote, Israel supporters say, glass them. We're going to turn all that sand and all the people on it just into glass. We're going to make it hot enough down there that you could melt steel beams, but not stunningly terrorist passports. So the ceasefire ends. The war keeps going. Who wants the war to keep going? Benjamin Netanyahu, the one who didn't stop the attacks in the first place. And the global state propaganda media has no problem supporting that viewpoint. Sure, Benjamin Netanyahu is bad and he didn't stop the attacks. And he wants the war to continue to stay in power. But the truth is the war has to continue because it is so justified. And look at that. Hamas just did another terrorism. And now we have to. And of course, all those narrative elements produce a conundrum. Why would we let Benjamin Netanyahu continue this war if that's going to keep him in power longer? If he's also the same guy that allowed the attack to happen. Do we just need to stop the war until we figure this whole thing out? Well, we can't do that because Hamas did a terrorism and that would keep Netanyahu in power. What do we do? Man, it kind of seems like maybe we should just shut this whole war thing down. And so over the weekend, a new line of this drama began unfolding. The journalist Aaron Mate from Grey Zone, who we mentioned yesterday, who Matt Taibbi mentioned as one of the organizations censored by the government and quasi-governmental organizations listed in the CTIL files and elsewhere, Aaron Mate tweeted, there are only outlandish stories like this from a purported male witness who uses odd language to describe, quote, a beautiful woman with the face of an angel, end quote, being raped by, quote, eight to 10 Hamas militants. This same witness also claims that he then saw another Hamas militant who, quote, took a shovel and beheaded another woman whose head rolled along the ground. Again, where is the evidence to back this up? Israel has been caught lying multiple times about atrocities and Hamas's hospital headquarters to justify its mass murder campaign in Gaza. And stories like this are only starting to surface now. It seems clear that this is yet another fabrication in the service of genocide. And he attached a piece from the New York Post. Now, there are a lot of questionable facts, in quotes, about this Israel story, the same way there were about Ukraine. And to the extent that people are taking sides, the sides people are taking are almost in all cases aligned with the sides they took regarding Ukraine and Russia. The uniparty right and the uniparty left are combined on their acceptance of the central narrative and differ slightly in their reactions to it. Ultimately, the goal is to set up the controlled opposition dynamic to keep people distracted and fighting about irrelevancies while the implementation of the global agenda presses ever forward. It would be wonderful to be able to parse these stories and know the truth so that we didn't have to engage with the possibility that we might fail to take seriously claims of violence and brutality when they are real claims 
That is absolutely a pitfall of engaging with material like this at all when you cannot know the answers. And unfortunately, we are in a situation where you cannot know the answers. But we are conditioned to act as if that is the only side that has a pitfall. And so to avoid that pitfall, we are inclined to believe this story based only on its brutality because we don't want to be the sort of person that would deny the truth of a story with this level of brutality. I mean, what kind of monsters would we be to say that a story like this is fake? People generally don't consider what it would mean to be wrong in the other direction. We can't exactly go around accusing everyone we don't like of acts of brutality and vicious sexual violence without any evidence whatsoever, can we? Oh, wait, of course we can. We have that whole hashtag me too thing. Standard issue villagers don't care about being wrong in that direction at all. They're wrong in that direction all the time. They accuse people of absolute atrocities on no evidence whatsoever, find out they're wrong and don't care at all. And no one holds them accountable morally or otherwise. They just keep on going and they will go right on to the next story and do exactly the same thing. If you tell them something happened and that thing they tell you has happened is brutal enough you just have to believe it on the basis that no one would ever make up such a thing. But people do make up such a thing and they do it all the time. We actually should require a significant standard of evidence if we're going to go around accusing other people of rape and murders and beheadings. It should not be hard to hold fast to that principle. But instead, that moral calculation has been totally inverted. We have to believe the claims simply because they're made. And we have to believe the people who are making those claims and give them the benefit of the doubt because no one would ever lie about such a thing. Therefore, no one does lie about such a thing. It's just too evil to ever happen. Therefore, it doesn't happen, except that it does happen and it happens quite a lot. On Sunday, the regime propagandist Barry Weiss, the woman who wrote the article in the New York Times, about our new intellectual renegades in the intellectual dark web, the regime literally telling us who our new intellectual renegades were, that Barry Weiss, the Barry Weiss who used her Twitter files as a marketing ploy for her new well-funded, quote unquote, independent blogger outlet. The Barry Weiss who went on Bill Maher like a year and a half after COVID to tell everybody that she had caught up to where normal people were in May of 2020. That Barry Weiss, the wannabe elite lesbian queen of the Uniparty left media, that Barry Weiss posted this article from a website called the JC, the Jewish Chronicle on X, formerly Twitter, and wrote, Quoting the article, I saw this beautiful woman with eight or 10 of the fighters beating and raping her. She was screaming, stop it. I'm going to die anyway from what you are doing. Just kill me. End quote. Weiss goes on. They were laughing. The last one shot her in the head. Savages. So let's take a quick look at this article in the Jewish Chronicle. This article's byline only lists JC reporter. So there's not a name attached to this article and to this reporting. Survivors of the supernova massacre witnessed women being gang raped and beheaded. New testimony has revealed 
Yoni Sadan, who escaped execution by hiding underneath a stage, said, I saw this beautiful woman with the face of an angel and eight or 10 of the fighters beating and raping her. She was screaming, stop it. Already, I'm going to die anyway from what you are doing. Just kill me. When they finished, they were laughing and the last one shot her in the head. I kept thinking it could have been one of my daughters or my sister. I had bought her a ticket, but last minute she couldn't come. Speaking to the Sunday Times at Citria, a support area set up for festival survivors southeast of Tel Aviv, Sadan said he also witnessed the brutal murder of women who resisted Hamas attackers. And the article goes through a series of similar claims. Skipping down. The fresh revelations come as mounting evidence of brutal atrocities committed against women on October 7th has spurred the international community to react. 57 days after the massacres, UN women have issued a statement condemning the brutal attacks launched by Hamas against Israel. So one of the global governance bodies of the global evil twin is putting out this statement about the evil twin faction Hamas and its attack against Israel. The international body said, we are alarmed by the numerous accounts of gender-based atrocities and sexual violence during those attacks. This is why we have called for all accounts of gender-based violence to be duly investigated and prosecuted with the rights of the victim at the core. Oh, that's so bold. That basically sounds like any statement that anyone could have made throughout the hashtag MeToo era. The article notes. Israeli police investigating sexual violence committed on October 7th say they have collected thousands of statements, photographs, and video clips documenting Hamas's crimes. Shelly Harush, the police commander leading the probe, said, It's clear now that sexual crimes were part of the planning and the purpose was to terrify and humiliate people. So our evidence is a police commander saying that there is evidence and what we're told is eyewitness evidence. It is very strange that they are spending so much time burnishing this case from two months ago. They want to make sure that the world knows that what happened on October 7th was a brutal attack and true as reported. In fact, far worse than reported. So we have the report from the New York Times that says not only did they know about this attack in advance, they've known about it for a year and they ignored all the signs because they just didn't take it seriously. We have to hold somebody accountable. Who should we hold accountable? Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, you might think we got to stop this war because it seems like Israel allowed it to happen, which is not what we were told at the beginning and kind of changes our calculus for the justification of what they have done in response. And maybe while we're in a ceasefire, it's time to consider those sorts of things. Whoops. Hamas did another terrorism. Now the ceasefire is over. It's all happening again. And it's even more deserved than before because they broke the ceasefire through another terrorism. And hey, it turns out there are all these new revelations about what happened two months ago. And these new revelations are even more brutal than ever. Therefore, this war, it's got to be justified. I mean, this has to be enough to make you understand that it is justified to indiscriminately kill as many people as they want until they believe that justice is served. But in the meantime, we still need to get rid of Netanyahu. Now, if you don't believe us enough, wait, there's more. The Associated Press on Sunday, December 3rd, published this post on X, formerly Twitter. 
an American warship and multiple commercial ships have come under attack in the Red Sea, the Pentagon says. It potentially marks a major escalation in a series of maritime attacks in the Mideast linked to the Israel-Hamas war. So, whoa, holy shit, an American warship is under attack in the Red Sea? Wait, why do we have an American warship there? <laughs> oh, don't worry about that. An American warship is under attack. It's linked to this Israel-Hamas thing. Whoa, it looks like we might need to start supporting America's involvement in a kinetic World War III in Israel over these centuries, if not millennia old, religious animosities that are now just playing out and coming to a head based on this paragliding go-kart attack. The Associated Press reports it this way. Ballistic missiles fired by Yemen's Houthi rebels struck three commercial ships Sunday in the Red Sea while a U.S. warship shot down three drones in self-defense during the hours-long assault, the U.S. military said. The Iranian-backed Houthis claimed two of the attacks. The strikes marked an escalation in a series of maritime attacks in the Mideast linked to the Israel-Hamas war, as multiple vessels found themselves in the crosshairs of a single Houthi assault for the first time in the conflict. The U.S. vowed to, quote, consider all appropriate responses, end quote, in the wake of the attack, specifically calling out Iran after tensions have been high for years now over Tehran's rapidly advancing nuclear program. Oh, that's weird. Isn't that the nuclear program that Barack Obama and Joe Biden were both supporting in Iran? Is that the same Iran regime they were sending all that money to? Or is this a different one? These attacks represent a direct threat to international commerce and maritime security. The U.S. military central command said in a statement, they have jeopardized the lives of international crews representing multiple countries around the world. It added, we also have every reason to believe that these attacks, while launched by the Houthis in Yemen, are fully enabled by Iran. Well, now it's getting real. Did they actually attack a U.S. warship? No, it turns out they didn't, but it was close. Houthi rebels were attacking three commercial ships, a U.S. warship in the Red Sea, for whatever reason, shot down a few drones. But all of this is Iran's fault. And if we go to war over this, I guess it's justified. I mean, this is getting really close to attacking the United States or at least a U.S. warship that's over there for some reason. So we have this story that places all of the blame on Netanyahu. He is who should be held accountable for the failure to stop these attacks, even though these attacks have provided so many opportunities. Sure, they were already staging a color revolution to get Netanyahu out of office, but knowing that he's responsible for allowing these brutal attacks to happen, Israel's 9-11, well, he definitely has to go. But does that mean that we have to stop the war? No, of course not. Because Hamas did a terrorism. Now we have new information about the brutal sexual violence they engaged in. You can't dispute that story despite the lack of evidence, because if you do, you're a monster. And the truth is they're getting pretty close to attacking America, too. So you got the seesaw going down. Oh, this is all Netanyahu's fault. They actually allowed this to happen. I don't see how we can allow this war to continue. And then the seesaw begins going back up. Hamas did a terrorism. The sexual violence was way more brutal than anyone could have ever imagined. And now they're basically attacking Iran. Now, all this information 
should make someone think, gosh, this sounds like an absolute mess. It doesn't sound like we're being told the truth by any of these sides. I don't know how we could possibly support further indiscriminate killing of whoever they decide they need to kill until justice is achieved. It should make one wonder about all that and maybe be a little hesitant about encouraging more killing, but it doesn't because the seesaw comes back down and what you end up with are the two things the global regime actually wants. Get rid of Netanyahu, keep the war going. And you might think, would they really run this whole narrative operation just to create public support for both of those agenda items? Get rid of Netanyahu, keep this war going? The answer is yes, but let's support that answer. Yesterday in Reuters, Turkey's Erdogan says Israel's Netanyahu will be tried as a war criminal. Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan said on Monday that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu would eventually be tried as a war criminal over Israel's ongoing offensive in the Gaza Strip while slamming Western countries supporting Israel. Turkey, which supports a two-state solution to the decades-old conflict, has sharply criticized Israel over its campaign in Gaza, launched in response to militant group Hamas's rampage on October 7th. More than 15,500 people have been killed in Israeli air and ground attacks, according to Gaza's health ministry. In a speech to an organization of Islamic cooperation committee meeting in Istanbul, Erdogan said the Western nations supporting Israel were giving it, quote, unconditional support to kill babies, end quote, and were complicit in its crimes. Beyond being a war criminal, Netanyahu, who is the butcher of Gaza right now, will be tried as the butcher of Gaza, just as Milosevic was tried, Erdogan said, in reference to Yugoslav ex-president Slobodan Milosevic, who was tried for genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes at a tribunal in The Hague. Those who try to skip over the deaths of all those innocent people by using the excuse of Hamas have nothing left to say to humanity, he added, referring to Western powers, which he said were, quote, blind and deaf. Unlike most of its Western allies in some Gulf states, NATO member Turkey does not view Hamas as a terrorist group and hosts some of its members. Erdogan, whose ruling party has Islamist roots, said a so-called contact group of Muslim countries, which was formed by the OIC and Arab League last month to hold talks on Gaza with Western countries and others, would continue discussions until the fighting in Gaza stopped, but added more must be done. We must absolutely evaluate the United Nations Human Rights Council and the International Criminal Court within this framework, he said, adding Israel's nuclear arsenal must not be forgotten. Erdogan, who has long called for the United Nations Security Council to be reformed to be more inclusive, also said that the UN had failed the test in Gaza and called for an urgent reform, repeating that the Security Council's five permanent members, the United States, Russia, China, Britain, and France, did not represent the world. The sincere efforts of Secretary General Antonio Guterres were sabotaged by the Security Council members, he said. None of us have to accept this system. It is not possible for such a structure to bring peace or hope to humanity. Now, I agree with him about the UN. The UN is a disaster. 
But the perspective is an interesting one to incorporate within the central narrative. He is saying that Netanyahu is bad, not because he allowed the attacks to happen and not for any of the reasons that the global regime might want to take Netanyahu out through that color revolution so they can reform the Supreme Court. He's saying Netanyahu is bad because of how extreme the response has been. But that extreme response is what a lot of the uniparty right, the Con Inc. media, the influencers in our country have been supporting explicitly, saying that Israel has the rationale and the justification to do as much of that sort of response as they want. And of course, they don't care at all what the opinion of Erdogan of Turkey actually is, despite the fact that he is the leader of a major Middle Eastern nation directly involved in the regional politics of all this and a member of NATO. Erdogan himself is a bit mysterious in terms of good twin, evil twin stuff, at least in my current understanding. But all of this is information among other information. It allows us to learn about Erdogan and Turkey. It allows us potentially to learn about Netanyahu in relation to Turkey or relative to his own position in that good twin, evil twin dynamic. But no matter what, all of these narrative pieces seem to be supporting the two parts of the global regime's agenda that they believe are necessary. Remove Netanyahu, keep the war going at least until their objectives there are accomplished, like making sure their leaders, leaders controlled by them are in place on all sides. And finally, let's add this layer on. This is from yesterday on defense.gov, the website of the U.S. Department of Defense. Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan support ironclad, but Congress could help, Vice Chairman says. The Defense Department provides security assistance to Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan, but Congress could pass a budget with supplementary funding that would ensure robust continuation of that support, said Navy Admiral Christopher W. Grady. Grady, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, spoke today at the Atlantic Council, the globalist Atlantic Council, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's who's saying this. Continuing resolutions are not where we want to be. We need stable and predictable funding for Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan, but also for DOD readiness and modernization, he said. So the continuing resolutions, those are the funding bills that keep getting passed through Congress. Mike Johnson just put one through a couple weeks ago. But as we discussed, those didn't make people happy. Those took us all the way through the holidays and into next year, which means that they're probably not going to get one of those omnibus packages that they get to pass on an up or down vote that gives them all the money they need to do everything they want next year with no accountability for any member of Congress, for any individual vote about their support for any individual spending item. So what Grady is saying here is that he doesn't want that to be the process. He wants to know that everything they could ever need for Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan is available. On a separate topic, Grady commented about China's claim today that the littoral combat ship USS Gabrielle Giffords illegally entered waters near the second Thomas Shoal, a tiny island in the South China Sea claimed by both China 
and the Philippines. Gabrielle Giffords, of course, by the way, is the woman who was shot in that incident where the media and regime assets pretended Sarah Palin's map with little targets on it caused that gun violence. So he had to take away everybody's guns. And her husband happens to be the corrupt and installed senator from Arizona, Mark Kelly. Grady said the United States will continue to operate in international waters in accordance with international law, and that includes the South China Sea as well as the Taiwan Strait. The U.S. is blessed to have allies and partners in that and other regions, he added. It's a strategic advantage that China doesn't have. Grady noted that although he heads the Joint Requirements Oversight Council, there's also a new International Joint Requirements Oversight Council that meets and leverages the advantages of acquisition strategy with allies and partners. There have been two meetings of the IJROC, he said. We are establishing requirements that we can work through together. So he is talking about the advantage of this little international community they're building in front of the Atlantic Council, saying that the continuing resolution strategy, that no longer works. What they need is all the money to continue all of these wars for as long as they want. Now let's return to the narrative seesaw idea that I proposed as we began the discussion. What we have are a series of narratives that should actually be in conflict with one another, but because of the context, as we understand it, as communicated by the regime to us through the global state propaganda media mouthpieces, and I know that's kind of a mouthful, but in the story as we believe it, in the situation as we understand it, all of that coming from the same sources, those ideas should be in conflict, but they play one up and down. They play the other up and down, and they are actually the fulcrum. They're arguing both sides of their same case in any sensible world, but we're not in a sensible world. And in their context, they're actually able to play these two cases off one another and get everybody to understand and to support what they wanted in the first place. Get rid of BB, keep the war going forever, and eventually they'll get to Taiwan. And what do we have? We have Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, all following the same playbook. And to be clear, I don't think any of us thought this sort of thing would be what happens in Israel. But I've been saying for two years that Taiwan would be a replay of what we see in Ukraine. And you can see that the regime thinks of all of these as part of one cohesive whole. The question is why? And the answer, of course, is because there is an evil twin faction present in all of these places. And it was so present. They had infiltrated so profusely that these were essentially global regime proxy states in the very same regions where major sovereign powers existed. And we're talking about, of course, Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, and the Middle East is especially congested. But these globalist proxy states are being removed in the vicinity of these major, theoretically, sovereign powers. That has to happen. It always had to happen. And it's quite easy to see with the good twin, evil twin paradigm, rather than engaging with our old understanding of how the world works, which makes absolutely no sense 
and just leaves you bouncing up and down on that narrative seesaw as the global regime's agenda continues to advance. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel-couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!